Ipkiss is not the man he used to be. Smokin! Have you ever killed anyone? Yeah, but they were all bad. What can I say? I'm a spy. Well, hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to a very special part two of our 1994 Entertainment Weekly Deep Dive. I'm your host, Brian Reese, and joining me back in action is one of my besties, Kate Lefkoff. Now, disclaimer, it took me till my fifth or sixth podcast to forget to hit record on my Zoom. But luckily, your boy Brian knows himself all too well, and did record a backup voice memo. You hear me flipping through magazines, but it's very intimate, so consider yourself, you know, getting even more personal with me on this very special episode. Please stay to the end. We have a very juicy last bit with a very special guest. And on that note, enjoy while you are streaming. Okay, we just took an intermission. You know, you guys, we just talked about Speed, my favorite movie of all time, for like 40 minutes straight, so we needed to take a breath. We made it through that, Kate. Thank you for going on that journey with me. It was like speed barreling through LA traffic. I was actually about to say it was analogous to being on the bus. <laughs> well, thank you for being the Sandy to my um, to my Keanu. Okay, so back into the summer of '94, City Slickers Two, which is our cover story. How dare they put that as the cover story? That as the cover story. They didn't have Avengers. They didn't have Marvel. Billy Crystal was their Iron Man, so this was analogous to Iron Man Two. Such a far away time in my mind. It's hard to believe that he would be your matinee idol for the summer. I know. It's not connecting with me at all. There's no need to watch City Slickers Two if you guys haven't seen the City Slickers One. It's a perfect movie. Watching it at this age, it's the whole thing about reevaluating your life when you're like nearing 40, not even 40. Billy Crystal's like, I'm 38 and it, it, my life's coming to an end. And I'm like, oh my God. But it is worth a watch. Norman, Hello. Jake Gyllenhaal plays his son in the first movie, Anyhow, iconic cameo. And there's nothing else to say about this movie except fun fact that Bruno Kirby, who was in the original, he didn't come back because of problems with Billy Crystal. Billy Crystal admits here, we had some problems and I feel bad about it. I'll just leave it at that. Ooh. Wow. Ooh. I can't believe he came out in print like that. Right, Bruno Kirby, Kate played his also best friend in When Harry Met Sally. He played yes. the same kind of role in City Slickers. So they really had a, a connection. They were in two iconic movies as his best friends. So here he's just straight up like, yeah, we had problems. <laughs> yeah, right. We beefed. We beefed the whole fucking movie. Billy Crystal quips, it was either brother or ghost in terms of bringing back pounds. And we didn't want to do ghost. As long as they pay well, I'll do it. Growls the body one-handed push-up artist Jack Palance. Doesn't have to be city slickers. Could be slick city for all I care. Wow. So there, I love you, that. there you go. There's the quote from the supporting actor. As long as they pay well, I'll do it. Oh my god, I love that. You know, I I liked Gary Oldman so much more ever since I saw an interview with him, and some and the interviewer was like, "What was your motivation for starring in the Harry Potter movies?" He was like, "Oh, paycheck, just like a lot of money. They pay a lot of money to be in the Harry Potter movies." I was like, "Okay, great, great." Yeah, please, we need more honesty. I mean, there's this new movie, which is this meta movie about Nick Cage. He's playing himself, and it's really great. He's like, I'm an auteur, I'm an artist, but this is my job, people. I have bills to pay. Like, I have to do these shitty movies. This is a job, as much as it's just an artistic <laughs> expression. He's got mortgages on his castles. Anyhow, the buzz on City Slickers 2. A glut of sequels and cowpoke comedies makes this 40 million picture a risk. Still, could be golden, them thar hills. Uh, it only made 40 million, so this was a bust. Sorry, Billy. 
moving on. I love trouble. Oh God, Kate. So this movie, I'm really excited to talk to you about. She's too good a reporter to quit. Stay there, I'll shoot. But she may know too much. Hang on, Jason. To stay alive. Julia Roberts, Nick Nolte, I Love Trouble, rated PG. They were supposed to be this, like, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn sparring as these dueling reporters where sparks fly, but it went south. Yes, I've seen it, like, in a TBS or a TNT-type setting a couple of times, and Nick Nolte is always a big question mark for me. He has zero appeal. I've never seen anything <laughs> appealing about him at all. He's like Kevin Costner's violent stepbrother in my mind. Like, I can't... <laughs> no, and the fact that Kate, he was not only a leading man in Hollywood during like the 80s, 90s, he was a heartthrob sex symbol, cover of People's Sexiest Man Alive. I just picture his um, mugshot now. I don't know if you know this, but they notoriously had horrible drama and feuding on set, Nick Nolte and Julia Roberts during this movie. And it was covered all throughout production. And I knew about all the drama. And the buzz here on I Love Trouble says, it's one of those movie titles that everyone involved could live to forget. We wanted it to be very exciting, glamorous movie, says director Shire of his sparring sexist comedy. Exciting he got, at least off screen. According to sources close to production, the two stars just may have taken their acerbic on-screen rivalry a little too far. Electric is how co-star Rubinick diplomatically describes it. The worst thing that can happen between two actors who have a lot to do with each other is neutrality. What does neutrality bring you? A yawn. Passion is interesting. Passion is chemistry. That can turn either way. Oh my God, they're calling it passion. Oh, what a reframe. They're calling it passion, but Julia Roberts goes on to say here, she says that Nick Nolte is a disgusting human being, leading Nolte to despond that she's not a nice person. In the New York Times 1994, she says, from the moment I met him, we sort of gave each other a hard time and naturally we got in each other's nerves and said that while Nolte can be completely charming and very nice, he's also completely disgusting. Completely disgusting. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Roberts didn't elaborate on how exactly Nolte has been disgusting to her during the movie, but it's safe to assume she didn't want to kiss him. It goes on and on. LA Times on set report, Nolte and Roberts didn't get along. Tempers flared early on, peppered with a few Roberts tantrums along the way. Roberts reportedly wasn't thrilled with Nolte's machismo, so she would deride and insult her co-star on set. This is all from the LA Times, so you're getting real sources. I was dying getting into it. Also, fun fact, the director, Charles Shire, he co-wrote the movie with his wife, Nancy Myers, at the time. So this is one of the original Nancy Myers projects before she broke out into her own, you know, wild, successful run. They did Father of the Bride together. They previously collaborated as a husband and wife duo. And her first movie, She Stepped Out Alone, is I think coming up next summer or two, the Parent Trap remake. So we're going to see a superstar rise on Nancy Myers. But this is her down in the dirt in a really troubled production. But Kate, isn't that wild? You picked up on like the disgusting ick factor of Nolte. Uh, Julia is feeling your vibe. I'm with her. Sorry, Julia. This is a little drop following Pelican Brief, but we'll we'll be back. Okay, next movie, Wolf, Kate. Wolf is a movie with Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer, directed by Mike Nichols, who's like a legend. You know, he did Working Girl, Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? But this was supposed to be this, this adult werewolf tale where Jack becomes a wolf at night. I never thought I'd meet a good man who looked at me the way you do. You don't know I'm a good man. Adult but. eroticism, adult wolf eroticism. <laughs> I know, okay. a niche, very niche market. You're asking like people who want horror to sit through an adult drama, but you're asking like people who want this like serious pathos to sit through like hijinks of, you know, Jack and Wolf play at night. So there's like no 
Really happy medium there. Uh, the buzz, if Jack disappoints, the hour of the wolf could be brief. I caught it many times on HBO babysitting now. Many times. Right. It was, for me, it had this a very adult allure. I was excited to like, exactly. get into it, but I never wrote it out. I never made it through any... I wanted to, I wanted to, to want it, basically. Like, <laughs> once the kids were in bed and I was home alone babysitting, like, eating, eating the illicit Oreos from the family's pantry and watching their HBO, this movie would come on and... <laughs> I'd be like, yes. And then like, right. just, I'd be back to watching Sisters or something. <laughs> right. It had all the appeal. Once it actually gets to the reveal of the wolf and the real yeah, plot. Stupid. It's ridiculous. Just that? stupid. <laughs> and actually, and it says here, the novelist, Jim Harrison, wrote the script. He said, I didn't get fired. I got tired, says Harrison. Then a week wow. or two before shooting, the suits got Nicholas to make a major plot change he won't discuss. In fact, he won't tell anyone about the story that is everything but hints at a theme akin to his last hit, Working Girl. First of all, these movies have nothing to do to each other. Oh, God, I'm scratching my head for a theme again. Oh, here's where they try to link it to Working Girl. Underdog gets feral because greed heads are ruining the world. Okay, this is a stretch. Twilight for grown-ups. Ah! Twilight, like Twilight for moms. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my God, Twilight for moms. They really need to rebrand Wolf. They could actually get a good second run out of this. No, I was just about to say, it's time to revisit this. I mean, it's time to reboot right. Wolf. I'd like to cast Ryan Gosling in the remake. Oh my God. Ryan Gosling and Margot Robbie in a remake of oh, Wolf. Oh, I'm ready. I'm getting shivers. I'm, I'm tingling. I'm ready to see. Hey, Kate, that's genius. So. Okay, speaking of genius, okay. We're going to one of your geniuses, one of your boy geniuses, your boy wonders, Macaulay Culkin. So he had a summer movie this year called Getting Even with Dad, which is a film with him and Ted Danson where Culkin, now less impish at 13, plays the son of a dim criminal, Danson, who hides Dad's loot, then blackmails him into spending some quality time. Hi, Dad. After years apart, Timmy's giving his dad a second chance. You, you want to go to these places? I want you to take me. Macaulay Culkin. Ted Danson. For all the birthdays, I missed him. Getting even with dad. I don't think people understand who Mac really is, says director Deutsch. He's a regular kid who runs around pulling pranks and beating Ted at chess. He's genuinely not interested in being an actor. Hmm. Given his $8 million salary, let's hope he was able to fake it. <laughs> that's, that's so mean. And then Ow. the buzz here. Early screenings have gone well, but a Mac backlash. Remember those cheers at the end of The Good Son? Can't be counted out. A McBacklash. I can't. Is it any wonder he went into hiding for the rest of his life? <laughs> well, seriously, I looked at the timeline. The later this fall is uh, Richie Rich, and after that, you don't see him till Party Monster in the 2000s. Um, I liked Pagemaster, though. Wasn't I like that movie. And... Right. That was before. Like, this is before Entertainment Weekly shredded him. Um, shredded him. But you know what's weird about that, about getting even with Dad looking back? Isn't it? It's so strange that out of the two of those leads ted danson and macaulay Culkin. ted danson has had that like he's had like two resurgences since oh my god getting even with that and macaulay Culkin hasn't had any other than recently having a baby and being in a google commercial talk about tom hanks iconic run in the 90s but macaulay Culkin, his mini run here kate 1989 uncle buck 1990 home alone 1991 my girl 1992 home alone 2 1993 the good son leading us to this summer Hello. I mean, what's Macaulay's world? I mean, we're eating him up, Michael Jackson included. We're not going there. I'm actually putting, <laughs> taking my foot out of my mouth. But no, truly, I mean, even the biggest star, pop star of the world was obsessed with Macaulay Culkin. It's hard to actually put into words what a star this kid was. And Kate, I want you to take this one because, but you love this boy. This is my first celebrity crush. 
I saw literally, and when I say like my first, I mean, I remember watching Home Alone on TV when I was 10 and I just thought, you know, he was the coolest. He was so cute, so funny, blah, blah, blah. And I never shook that crush. It has been with me forever. Like even when he got like heroin, scary, skinny and greasy, I, whatever, I still would have dropped everything in my life to be with him. He, <laughs> everything I, in your life. Everything in my life. Your piggy so, bank emptied. I didn't see this movie in real time. I saw this movie later and I thought it was stupid when I saw it. And I, but I, and I was sad for him. I wanted to like it, but I was sad for right. him. And I also thought it was weird coming after The Good Son because it felt like. One step um, forward, two steps back. Like he was progressing. I felt like somebody, I, I, it felt just so contrived. Like somebody was like, okay, people hated him in the good son. We're going back to what works. We're going back to formula. Like he's, he's going to be the son with the pranks again. Mm-hmm. And we're walking away from serious acting. I know. Um, and it's weird. You know, in my mind, they have like you know, sliding doors, like what could have been in his mind. Like Kier, movie, Karen Culkin is sliding doors. Like Karen Culkin, you're like, oh, wow. This is someone who was in Home Alone. Fuller, oh and you're yeah. like, oh, this is someone who then took interesting parts, and then later, like, Igby goes down, and, like, Karen Culkin was able to take these smaller films and do work, but that's the thing, Karen Culkin was just Fuller. He was not the star. He wasn't the poster. He wasn't the face. But you know what? It's an interesting, at the back of this uh, magazine, Kate, I sent you this little sidebar. It's about Anna Klemsky. It's called Our Girl. She was his co-star in My Girl, child actress, who also, you thought, couldn't really work, but then... There she popped up in Veep, and she was just in the Inventing Anna on Netflix. And it's like, damn, if Darren Culkin can go on to Succession and get his Emmy nominations. I honestly have to think it's Macaulay's choice because there's no way that anybody would write an HBO vehicle for him. After this movie Saved, I remember I really liked this movie Saved in the mid-2000s. It was this parody about Christianity. He's oh, in, is that with Mandy Moore? Yes, and he's in a wheelchair. Oh, Jenna Malone's in it. It's really a good, uh, it's a good watch. So he was trying, but, you know, like that commercial that went viral about him as Kevin, he is, he's just Kevin McAllister, period, in his story. Yeah. So, Kate, I'm going to transition us. Do you have anything more weight you want to expand on Getting Even or Macaulay? No, only that I read the paperback for books based on the movie of both The Good Son and um, My Girl, as though they were original novels, and my parents <laughs> made fun of me nonstop. Kate. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like when they used to be, you know, when the- The adaptation. An adaptation. Not a movie based on a book. No, the adaptation. (laughs) Kate, we are meant to be on this podcast. We are such sick, evil twins. My parents were like, those aren't real books. So I was like, my girl's the real book. It has words in it. I'm reading it. I read it. I read it over and over and over again. What was wrong with me? I think I made my dad buy it for me in the public's checkout. I'm serious. I'm gonna. I'm looking it up online right now. What you turn pages? I'm gonna find it. Wait, Kate. Let me show you this right here. See this? This is my book journal. I was doing a deep dive for like old pictures and stuff, Kate, and I found this journal. It's my book journal from 1993 into 1994. Wow, what a trend. It's my eighth grade journals. I was going from middle school into high school was this summer, which is such a transitional time. And I found the journal of all the books I read between 1993 to 1994. Kate, this entry is from October 1994. Next, I read The Good Son. It was based on the movie. I saw the movie previews and they looked good. I decided to read the book before I saw the movie. I'm glad I read the book. It was excellent. I am going to see the movie. 
Sincerely, Brian Reese. But we were like the only two people in the world who read that book. Kate, and I just asked you, is there anything else you want to bring up about? I am dying. I'm dying. But this is such a good transition because this- We must be the only two people. I can't, the thought of both of us in in Florida in the 90s reading that book adaptation Mm. only miles apart, Brian. I'm dying. Well, look, okay, so the first entry. Dear Mrs. Graham, something I like about the book The Pelegrim Brief are the way Darby Shaw, the main character, plans things out so well. I like how this book keeps you in suspense by not telling you who did what. I finished The Pelegrim Brief last week. It was great. I liked it even better than The Firm. It got slow, so I picked up another book called Forrest Gump. I usually read mystery, but this book was a comedy. I really enjoyed it. Forrest Gump was a really interesting man. I finished it over the weekend. This is September 1993, a year before the movie came out. And then if you keep going through here, Kate, I finished here. Then there's The Good Son, all leading me up to actually the next movie and the preview here. I was reading a Babe Ruth autobiography and then I detoured. I was like, I stopped reading Babe and started The Client, a book I really wanted to read. I finished it in three days. It was as great as The Pelican Reef, The Firm, and A Time to Kill. John Grisham is a truly great author. My favorite characters were Mark and Reggie. Mark was smart and Reggie got what she wanted. I can't wait to see the movie The Client. Now I'm going to back to finish up Babe Ruth. Right, hey. you, you teenage Brian with the same reading habits as a grandma on vacation. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Then I go on to like a whole Dean Koontz run. The next movie on the list was The Client. I had read the book and I was like ready to like get to the mall to see these movies. And The Client came out um, in July. It stars Susan Sarandon as Reggie. And then Brad Renfro as Mark. This was about an 11-year-old Mark who witnesses the suicide of an attorney and he gets protected by a Reggie Love who is an attorney played by Susan Sarandon. A child has witnessed a murder. Why should he talk if we can't protect him? Susan Sarandon, Academy Award winner Tommy Lee Jones. And we're playing enough games here? The Client, rated PG-13. I love this, Kate. They say, the movie includes a makeover for Sarandon's character who is transformed from a gray-haired 52-year-old into a hip, red-tressed, Led Zeppelin fan. Gray-haired, 52, ancient 52. Buzz, doesn't have Tom, doesn't have Julia, doesn't have a lock on the first two Grisham adaptations, $100 million takes, but it should do more than respectable business, which is actually a good call out because it falls just under those $100 million grosses. It clears 90 million, which honestly, you gotta admit, is such a success now for a movie about just like, like they said, a 52-year-old lawyer. 52-year-old. I know, now Sandra Bullock in context is 57, starring in Lost City as this gorgeous, like, tanned woman in the jungle with Channing Tatum. But then 52-year-old was, like, get out the, you know, rocking chair and the knitters and the readers. Okay, Forrest Gump, Kate. Had the double CD. Had the double CD. Kate, sorry to cut you off, rode my bike with my brother to a Kmart. It was a mission to go to Kmart. My brother got the TLC Crazy Sexy Cool CD and I got the double disc Forrest Gump. Uh, iconic soundtrack, continue. Oh, I can't hear the bird song without thinking. I can't hear all the leaves are brown <laughs> without thinking about Forrest Gump. <laughs> and I can't, I can't actually, I can't ever learn anything about the Vietnam War without thinking about Forrest Gump. Sick, mm. how, it's sick how that movie has replaced real learning in my mind. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I think there's a lot of kids, like, they don't have, like, fundamental American history and Forrest no, Gump. No, I don't know anything about American history unless it happened to Forrest Gump. That's, and that's so sick. 
Well, it's funny because that really is the subtext of them reevaluating this movie all these years later is they're like, wow, this movie like delved with so many hot button issues like Vietnam, AIDS, racism, the political movement of the time. And there's yeah. just no thought. He's literally just zipping through all of these scenes like an unproblematic white man, just uh, right. barreling through the problems of the world. American histories from like a, a white man with the IQ of a 10 year old boy. Perfect. <laughs> well, I had, I had seen the, you know, I'd read the book. I was ready for the movie. The world will never seem the same once you've seen it through the eyes of Forrest Gump. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Winner of six Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Best Picture, Best Actor, mm -hmm. Best Director. It won everything except Best uh, Original Screenplay, which... Quentin Tarantino won, and he said, like, this is clearly the only award I'm winning tonight because it was a, a, a sweep at the Oscars. It won Best Visual Effects. Leaving Tom Hanks into those scenes throughout history, that was, like, a big deal at the time, seeing him placed into iconic moments. Uh, do you remember that being, like, a thing, seeing Tom Hanks in the in the scenes as Forrest Gump with, like, Kennedy yeah, and whatnot? Yeah, but I took it for granted. I don't, like... How when I when this movie came out, the standout scenes for me were sounds of Sally Field like having sex to get Forrest Gump into that school at the beginning. Right. And that scene made no sense to me the first time I saw it. Years later, I was like, oh, I get it. Um, right, the squeaking. <laughs> the squeaking, and when he comes out and he says like, "Wow, you're you're," he says something like, "Your your mom sure values your education." But no, that's a good point, though. I'm talking about all this visual effects, and you're like, yeah. no, it was just actually wow. these little moments. No, the visual effects meant nothing to me. Um, is there a is there a Mr. Gump, Mrs. Gump? That's all I remember. Gump. <laughs> the 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 accent's wild. You know, Tom Hanks based his accent on Little Forest, the little boy in that movie. He was authentic from you know the region, local casting, and Tom's like, I'm gonna. Do my fours gump off of that little boy. I'm forced, forced gump. Wow, interesting. Yeah, it says in that's here. Where, that's where Chet gets it, his, his ability to do the voices. Buzz, Hank's hot streak continues, which is true. I mean, last summer he had Sleepless, this summer Forrest Gump, $294 million. And uh, oh, wow. his second back-to-back -back best Oscar after Philadelphia. A movie, Kate, that I saw alone at DeSoto Square Mall as a 12-year-old boy, insisting to see Philadelphia. But somehow stayed in the closet till 24? Question mark. You weren't in the closet. You just thought you were. Right. Believe me. The institute right, no, that was... dropped off at age 12 to see Philadelphia. Or that is coming out. And I remember, I remember coming home, talking to my Uncle Bill was visiting. And he was like, what'd you see? I'm like, I saw Philadelphia and educating him about the plot of the movie. Little did I know, years later, Kate, when I was going to NYU, my Uncle Bill said, have fun, but you better watch out for Christopher Street. So when I got to NYU, I avoided Christopher Street because I thought that's where you get robbed or you get murdered. And then eventually when I wandered down there, I just saw a row of rainbow flags. So he just told me to avoid. <laughs> it was an acknowledgement. He's like, watch out for Christopher Street. <laughs> They'll eat you up there. Oh my God. And actually years later, if Uncle Bill, if you're listening, let's give him credit. He took me out and we went back to the West Village as adults and he, we went to the big gay ice cream shop and he bought me a big old ice cream at a big old gay ice cream shop. Anyhow, back to Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump's a movie I saw growing up a hundred times. Like, and it is so many to live, it's true. The music and a feather on the wrong day probably could bring a tear to my eye. You know? Absolutely. Of course, now looking back, it's been lowered in the ranks of AFI's top 100 list, and they've looked back about its problematic history. It beat 
Pulp Fiction at all these awards, which looking back, it was like the old Hollywood beating what was going to be the new Hollywood of like unconventional, innovative. Without sounding like you're, um, a haggard 52-year-old, they don't make movies like Forrest Gump anymore. Robert Zemeckis, we should note, directed this, Kate. And he's coming off the Back to the Futures, Death Becomes Her, which is really innovative uh, visual effects. Even this superstar combo, they didn't have money to do the running across America scene, Kate. So they had to like hide funds and have a secret budget to go out and shoot those little vignettes and hide it from the studio. And Tom Hanks' brother is doing most of the shots. He's the stand-in, the OG Chet Hanks, you know? <laughs> um, he was out there just body doubling for Forrest. Anyhow, the fact that this movie, Kate, has gone on to inspire a restaurant chain. <laughs> I've eaten there It's fucking amazing. I ate it at Hawaii. The shrimp is so good. The towers of coconut, oh my God. We ate there with the kids and it was very hard to explain how that movie related to Universal Studios to my kids. Oh my God. And to turn it into a thing where you have a, a signature paddle, run for us, run, stop for us, stop, to signal your waiter to come and go, it's cruel. My, my kids were also like, who was Forrest Gump? And the, I was like, he's not a real person. And they couldn't, they were like, what? what? Why are all these quotes everywhere? Like, oh, <laughs> right, yeah. right. Why are all these quotes everywhere? Stupid is a stupid does. They're like, is that a presidential term? I'm like, listen, life is like a box of chocolates. So just <laughs> Eat your shrimp. Oh my God, you never know what you're going to get. And that's actually a testament for Robin Wright, who plays Jenny. She's had evolution. Let's give her some credit. Mm -hmm. Princess Bride to mm -hmm. Jenny to like sur surviving Sean Pedd's marriage to surviving Kevin Spacey's run on I House of Cards. Like surviving Kevin Spacey. She just, she can swat and right. talk to Kevin. And she's away. directing. I saw she directed some of the last episodes of Ozark. She's this like fierce director. Robin Wright. I don't know that. Robin Wright, nay pen, no longer pen. Oh my gosh, Kate. I'll let you take over, but this is where John Hughes went off the rails. Like, this is where John Hughes had his run as classic 16 Candles, Pretty in Pink, Home Alone. And then we get to Baby's Day Out. Baby's Day Out is the weirdest movie because you could literally hear the conversation like, what if we made Home Alone, but instead of a 13-year-old, it was a nine-month-old? That's That honestly feels like that. <laughs> no, that was the pitch. They were That's like, the how can we go younger? They're like, five, yeah, right. four? Like, they're, they're like, like how about... Four months. Okay, what if Macaulay Culkin was nine months old? Like, that's exactly what this movie is. And the baby in this movie even, it's a blonde, blue-eyed baby. The baby in this movie even looks like Macaulay Culkin. I'm not, I'm not making that up. <laughs> it's baby Culkin. That was in the casting ad. They're like, do you look like a six-month-old Culkin? Exactly. Bring your, bring your baby Culkins. <laughs> and the... That's how the they found Karen. Is, Karen's not even his real brother. They found him in a casting hall. <laughs> the baddies in this movie are are like the wet the, the soggy bandits the baddies in this movie it hits all the same it's exactly the same there's like a paint can to the forehead Stop. a wrench to the groin it's got all the same things notably <laughs> different Lara Flynn Boyle starring as a wholesome mom in this okay so you're miscast from the start okay nothing so, wholesome about that woman well here's the buzz sounds awfully young but at least Hughes knows the territory no, mama. This movie made $16 million. Okay, Kate, so we need to go to another one that is, for me, one that we're talking about my sexuality coming out of the closet. This is a movie that honestly pushed me so far back into the closet, and that confused me. So this is the summer I was objectifying Mel Gibson and Maverick and Andrew Keegan in Camp Nowhere, and I'm starting to have, like, a awakenings of these, you know, 
men on screens. But I have to admit, the woman who completely distracted me and questioned my sexuality tenfold was Jamie Lee Curtis in True Lies. From James Cameron. Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's a Soviet Murph 6 from an SS-22 in launch vehicle. I married Rambo. Jamie Lee Curtis. It's not like he's saving the world or anything. This is the problem with terrorists. Really inconsiderate when it comes to people's schedules. Schwarzenegger is a spy. He makes his wife involved in one of his sting operations and makes her pose as a stripper. By the way, this movie was condemned and hated on by the Association of Women. Like it was protested by like the feminist organizations of the day because they thought it was really disrespectful about women. All I know is it gave me a semi in the theater. Watching Jamie Lee Curtis do a strip tease, I saw it with my cousin Lee. We gripped each, we were grabbing each other's arms. We were standing up. We were like took to our feet in the theater, howling during this movie as she does the strip tease. My name is Michelle. Carl thought you'd like me. You may start by. And zipping your dress. It's at once erotic and comedic. And actually, Kate, what I'm realizing looking back is just like, yeah, seeing Jamie Lee Curtis's amazing like makeover, where in a split second she goes from like frumpy housewife in a hallway, she rips off the sleeves of her dress, rips off this like fringe at the hem, dumps water from a vase in her hair to slick it back, puts on lipstick, pops her tits out. At the time, I thought I was just getting off on. The TNA, but really, I think just the pure showmanship, the bravado, the audacity, the, the comic bravado, timing. Right, 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 but yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis in that movie was everything. But I got to admit, Arnold was too. Like, we were in love with Arnold off of his comedies at this point. Twins, Kindergarten Cop. Kindergarten Cop, And yeah. the fact that at this point I had seen Terminator 2 and going into True Lies, Kate, I was like launched. I was just action obsessed. Like, this is the summer of speed and True Lies, like tenfold, where... After this, like, this is all I wanted to do was, like, in my mind, make action movies. It would be such a good back-to-back. And here, Entertainment Weekly says, Schwarzenegger, Cameron, a $70 million budget rumored to have spiraled past the $100 million mark. A release date postponed to allow for post-production complications. Yes, it's deja vu all over again, as the Terminator duo ignite their latest stick of cinematic dynamite. He even gets to enjoy a flirtation with villainous Tia Carrere, who plays Sean Connery's love interest last summer in Rising oh Sun. Tia Carrere. When we talk about Pete this unfortunately was Tia Carrere's peak. She must be so mad at Christy Teigen. Oh my God. And this is also peak racist stereotyping because the villains yes. in this movie are so bad. They are like the traditional like Middle Eastern like boogeymen with guns and hooting and hollering. And this movie also, I remember at the time, it was heavily uh, criticized and censored from um, you know civil rights groups about its depiction of the Middle Eastern, um, you know, well, terrorists so. in this movie. Um, but this is baked into like that relic of its time. No, it is such a relic of its time. I loved this movie too. I wasn't allowed to see it. I caught it way later on TV and I loved it. Loved it. Also, I have to just give a final shout out to Tom Arnold in the film, who really takes his small screen, like Roseanne success to the big screen here. What's your exit strategy? I'm gonna walk right out of the front gate. May I see your invitation, please? Sure. Here's my invitation. Yeah, that worked good. Right out the old front gate. Has a big run. After this, he's got nine months and a couple other big screen performances. Tom, you have to admit, has great comedic presence in the film. His uh, sparring with Arnold Schwarzenegger is actually one of the other uh, bits that makes this movie work. 
Well, he's like standing in for Danny DeVito. Perfect, yes. You just said it. He is a Danny DeVito. And actually, I got to talk to Tom uh, Arnold about this movie at my friend's wedding. He was talking about uh, Jim Cameron directing this movie, and he was like, I can't tell you the amount of times that Jimmy like threw a megaphone at the ground and would hurl a megaphone at me because I had to hit my mark and I'd have to run and hide behind a tree. And every time I miss my mark and he's like, God fucking damn it, Tom. And he throw the <laughs> megaphone down. He's like, I made that son of a bitch break so many megaphones, which really explains the bravado of James Cameron at the time. I want to read because I was telling you Entertainment Weekly is reporting buzz about a 70 million budget rumor spiraling past 100 million. Cameron insists the budget is nowhere near the rumor $121 million that Hollywood has been talking about. But in his view, what the fuck does it matter? I'm gambling that people will say, hey, I've got my money's worth here. The movie delivers. If it changes the cost of your ticket, it matters. If it doesn't, who cares? Wow. Buzz. Could go either way. After all, a blockbuster and a bomb are both explosives. But we're oh. betting this is the kind that makes people run toward the theater. Oh my God, wow, they really, they were slit eye, dry mouth typing that. Uh, they would. But no, this movie did not have any issue. It made 150 domestic and uh, internationally was a huge success. Uh, Arnold was back after his last action hero uh, setback. This was, yeah, a major step forward. And I was sad reading all the research, you know, Kate, there's like all of the talks of the sequel, the sequel, the sequel, but, you know, Arnold became governor yada 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 and now jamie lee curtis follow her on instagram people even if you are not a fan of jamie lee curtis follow oh god, her on instagram I love her. I love her sobriety journey strangely enough oh my god and i love her just unabashed gray-haired fearless take no prisoner don't give a fuck she's in that movie everything everywhere all at once mm -hmm. uh knives out jamie lee curtis has had such a great uh resurgence mm -hmm. as uh more of a character actress. Um, and like my bi era was Jamie Lee True Lies. Like how could I be gay if I would be that excited about this woman cavorting on a bedpost? Arnold is tricking her. He's got a tape recorder. Oh, this is my last thing. This is my favorite quote of the movie. It's not a quote. It's just a mumble. Arnold Schwarzenegger has his tape recorder and he's got someone to pre-tape lines as this stud to trick his wife. And he's playing this tape recorder and he's like, do it slowly. Do it. Do it see me. No, no. Turn around. Do it. Do it very slowly. Let your hands be your guide as you let your body roam. Do it slowly, do it, do see me. And then like the tape recorder drops and she sees that it's her husband and she's like, Harry! He's gotta save his wife. Harry! Harry! Rounding out July, there's one other movie, Kate, that left an impression on me, Angels in the Outfield. Buzz, Field of Dreams meets It's a Wonderful Life. Irresistible, but how much tear jerking can a person take? But this movie actually did, um, it was like a surprise success. It made 50 million at the box office for this small family film was like a, was a, a real surprise success. And it was about uh, an orphan played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh. He's an orphan on the team. And Kate, all it is, it's not even a movie. It is just a signature move. When Joseph Gordon-Levitt sees angels in the outfield, literally, he comes out of the dugout and does this. You know, I've got my arms up and I'm just <laughs> wafting them up in the air. The entire stadium, the catchers, the people, the sportscasters, everyone in the outfield. It's a Coca-Cola commercial. It drops my memory. I brought up the end scene when he comes out and sees the angel. I haven't seen the movie, honestly, since theaters. Kate, I started crying. It like literally brought me back to being right there. I remember seeing it with my brother and like, at the time, that was so emotional. It was so manipulative. You got nothing left. Yeah, you do. You got an angel with you right now. Just got here. 
I had been like embarrassed. I'm crying to Tony Danza as a pitcher watching an angel in the outfield. I was like gonna throw up. Yeah, I haven't seen it <laughs> since, but Kate, is there anything you wanna say on Mi Vida Loca, The Shadow, or It Can Happen to You? It Can Happen to You. Give credit, Nicolas Cage really has had a very long career. That's all I have to say. Longer than we remember. He's and been with us forever. He normally plays esoteric this is freaks. He's still playing it straight. You've never seen yeah. a sweeter role. He's just a nice cop who gives a I waitress a $2 million tip. That's it, period. If this ticket wins, I'll come back tomorrow and split the proceeds. And if it doesn't, I'll still come back and leave you a tip. What do you think? I think I'm never gonna see you again. I did like this movie. Who's the girl in it, Bridget Fonda? Bridget Fonda. And the standout is Rosie Perez, who plays Nicolas Cage's wife, who doesn't want to give the check away. <laughs> 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 Just a quick stop at Tiffany's, darling, and I'll be born again. I've got something to tell you. Two million dollars? Come on! Why didn't you stop at half? Why didn't you just give her all the money? And he's like, baby, I have to split this check. And I'm Team Rosie Perez. If your husband came home and told you, you won the lottery and he's splitting the check with a beautiful waitress. A waitress? No, thing. no. And he's like, but baby, I told her I'd split this with her. It's like, it's fucking tough. Like, I'm Team Rosie Perez. Like, they are in this tiny one-bedroom apartment in Queens. Team Rosie forever. It would be such an interesting movie if the waitress had been a waiter. I would just, I would love to see that weekend. Oh, my God. I'm going to move on to North. When I talk about, like, top 10 movie-going experiences, Kate, I'll never forget. North is in the top three. North is one of the biggest misfires in the history of cinema. The worst movie of 1994, the movie that Roger and I each would least like to sit through a second time. The single worst picture of 94. My choice is another cataclysmically unfunny comedy. It's called North, directed by Rob Reiner of all people. It got one of the worst reviews that Roger Ebert has ever given in his history of reviews. Um, to the point where the screenwriter of the film confronted Roger Ebert about it. There's a long history of um, Roger Ebert's hot takes, like, you know, getting under people's skins and people coming for him. Oh, well, I love his, I, do you remember, I don't know if you, who was making fun of me for reading this in college, his collection of I hated, hated, hated this movie. His collection of his least favorite movies. I loved it, his essays. Kate, that's exactly where I'm going to. In his book, Hate, hate, hated this movie. The number one feature in that movie is North. The title of that book came oh, from that. the North Review. Here's the North Review. I hated this movie. Hated, 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 hated this movie. <laughs> hated it. Hated every simpering, stupid, vacant, audience-insulting moment of it. Hated the sensibility that anyone would like it. Hated the implied insult to the audience by its belief that anyone would be entertained by it. And that's just a portion of the review, Kate. That led to the title of that book. When it came time to write my newspaper review of this movie, I don't know, something just came over me. My fingers on the keyboard had little minds of their own. I was rolling along, writing my usual scathing, but civilized comments, when suddenly a sinister inner force took over and I found myself typing, and I quote, I hated this movie. Hated, 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 hated this movie. Hated it. Hated every simpering, stupid, vacant, audience-insulting moment of it, unquote, and so on. Altogether, I used the word hated ten times. But how many stars do you think he gave it? None. Zero. It has such a great cast. 
Writer Alan Zwiebel described the review as embarrassing and hurtful and stated it was repeatedly quoted to him, his wife, and his son, who had inspired the book North. In an encounter with Ebert years later, the writer jokingly said, and I, oh, well, jokingly is important. I didn't get that when I first read. <laughs> I skimmed on that word. The writer jokingly said, and I just have to tell you, Roger, that that sweater you're wearing, I hate, 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 hate that sweater. I liked it better when it was like a real read. <laughs> That's a deliberate attempt at defending yourself. He also, keep, he also keeps a clipping of the review in his wallet, which he reads at public events. I agree. Go Alan Zwiebel. If you're going to, you know, if you're not going to be loved, be I hated. Like, lean all the way in. Does Kanye West know about this movie, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god you're so right the most famous north is north i'm sorry but no i never saw this connection made when kanye revealed his child's right. name okay but entertainment weekly they got whiff of it early north's blend of whimsy and seriousness wasn't working for test audiences however its release was delayed for three months while scenes were reshot Oh my God, the tone of that movie all over the place. Buzz, not good, and not helped by those iffy test screenings and rumors that the budget went north of $40 million. It's also just a strange premise for a family movie. Like, he has parents who are able to provide for him and love him. They're checked out, so he's going to go audition new parents. The logline, feeling underappreciated by his work-obsessed folks, young North, played by Elijah Wood, who we need to point out was like, rivaling Macaulay Culkin as the hottest child star at the time. I'm so mad that Elijah came out on top. I'm... That's the thing. Macaulay didn't get his Frodo. He didn't get his iconic series. Yeah, it says Young North, Elijah Wood, declares himself a free agent and sets off around the globe auditioning parental replacements. So speaking of parental replacements, my parents, I want to replace by not forbidding me to leave the house to go see this movie. Because, Kate, this was knee-deep into the summer. By the end of July, I became truly obsessed at this point. Where North came out, my parents weren't home. Like, Danny, let's get on the bikes. My brother, who's two years younger than me, I'm 13, he's 11. Get on your bikes. And we pedaled to Oakmont 8. For us, it's the farthest we had ever gone away from home in our lives by bike. It was the summer sweltering heat. End of July, we were exhausted by the time we got to the theater it is as if we had run away from home it was home alone three lost in bradenton we were like so far from home and so removed we couldn't believe we made it all the way to the theater we dropped our bikes we went in to see north north the worst movie of all time is what drove us to this but when we got out kate it was blazing like the black cement of the parking lot was like like it was melting melting you could see the vapors in the sun so we call her and kathy who's no longer with us. And I know she's an angel still to this day because she was an angel that day. And we called, got to that payphone, and she drove to the theaters. We put the bikes in the back of her car and we got like a ride back to her space. And then later okay. on, my parents came out to get us like, what did you kids do for I'm North? Nervous. This like, oh a, this torturous mission where we left home. We were like North. I, I abandoned my parents to take to the road. And luckily, my Aunt Kathy saved us. But of all films. Right, you put it all on the line for North. For fucking <laughs> North. The Shadow was a failed comic book movie, Kate, with um, Alec Baldwin. $45 million budget. And the movie only made uh, $32 million. The Shadow with Alec Baldwin. And the only reason I want to shade Alec Baldwin is in the last episode, they said that Harrison Ford took over all the roles that Baldwin wouldn't do. The Jack Ryan role. And then in The Fugitive. So Alec Baldwin's dropping out of Fugitive to do The Shadow. Oops. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. His, his compass was not pointing north. No. Oh my God. North. <laughs> Moving on, we have uh, Clear and Present Danger, which, again, is the Harrison Ford movie where he's playing Jack Ryan, another 
Huge hit of the summer. The buzz here. Ford's Fugitive made $130 million, But $83 million that Patriot Games took and seems a likelier finish for this Clancy follow-up. Although Clarence President did better than that. It made over $100 million. And again, this is a movie Alec Baldwin could have had, but he dropped out. Harrison yeah, Ford's doing the part. absolutely no instinct whatsoever. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, who, do we think is, who do we think has replaced Harrison Ford in our lives? John Krasinski or Matt Damon? Oh my God, good call. As kind of our like, our square jawed, like, you know, yeah, I was like, decent be... masculine male. Yeah. Right. It would be in the clear and present right. danger. Or is it a Chris? Do they want it to be a Chris Pine or a Chris mm-hmm. Pratt or a Chris? I think Chris, Chris Pine for some reason, no. I, I mean a Chris so Evans, Chris Evans. I mean, yeah, oh, he's too hot. Okay, wait. So clear and present danger. The only thing I want to note here um, is it's directed by Philip Noyce. It says noise, noise. noise. I don't want to be like noise, noise. <laughs> freaking noise. That's like the review after you watch Top Gun Maverick. What do you think, guys? Fucking noise. Okay. okay. So it says noise is back after directing last summer's Sharon Stone stinker Sliver. His quote: "It's a lot more fun than being locked up in an apartment building with the Sliver Company." He says, "One day we're at the top of a mountain, and the next we're in the Oval Office." So again, this is the director shading how bad that movie was. Wow, but also, here's another tie-in. There was a Baldwin in Sliver. Yes. yes. God, they just don't know how to pick them. Okay, and that's July. So Kate, we're on our last month of the summer. August is normally where they would dump the, the dreck of the summer, but sometimes they would have these more taboo movies also that they're like, all right, let's see how this does. And one of those was Natural Born Killers, which, Kate, I don't know about you, but at the time, probably you and I were the same thing. It was just a scary buzzword at the time. Scary. And I have to say, like, <laughs> it's so scary. And even though Woody Harrelson obviously has been around forever, it's funny because I was watching with my kids last night. I was watching The Hunger Games. I don't know if you've seen those movies. Oh, yeah. But he's in The Hunger Games. Yeah. And... I was like cautionary tale to the girls. I was like, oh, he always play. He's like this character could be really scary. He's, he's right. Scary. If it's Woody Harrell's in it, like, right. Take no- take notice. Same. This when this movie came out, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have seen it for all the tea in China. No, never. we were scared. Right. We were scared. like we were at the Flintstones. Like we were Flintstones kids. And even though I was like deep diving into like you know adult film, it was still testament of where I was at thirteen. Like. Great, too cool for Lion King, but like shaking at the knees for natural born killers. Whereas your husband at my age, Kate, was like, fuck yeah. I'm like, sorry, Jeremy, if you oh, listen to this. this movie. <laughs> Jeremy loves this movie. I've never seen it and I never will. Well, you know who also hasn't seen it? Good transition. In full, Quentin Tarantino says he never saw the whole thing. He thought this was a bastardization of what he wrote and he said he walked out of it. So Entertainment Weekly says here, working from a script by Quentin Tarantino, Oliver Stone has abandoned Vietnam, but not violence, for a blood-splashed satirical saga of two vicious, love-struck serial killers who become tabloid TV darlings. An Oliver Stone film. Mickey and Mallory. Feared by thousands. I love you so much, baby! I love you. Watched by millions. We're fighting. Can't stop fighting. Nobody can. Woody Harrelson, Juliette Lewis, Robert Downey Jr., and Tommy Lee Jones. What do you have to say to your fans? You ain't seen nothing yet. Natural Born Killers. 
Will the cutting-edge violence of Killers overshadow the satire series themes? Stone insists hip audience will get the joke. I'm having some fun, he teases. Buzz, expect a public brawl over the film's rating and a love-it-or-hate-it reactions from critics and moviegoers, which is exactly the case. The movie had yeah, an NC-17 rating. It. They had to cut out four minutes of the film. This is one of the seminal movies causing some of that debate. Is the media responsible? Violence in the media provoking and causing violence. Yeah, I've never seen the movie in full, Kate. Me neither, but how iconic is that photo of Woody and Juliet leaning on the red car, the natural born killers photo. It's Woody in a red mesh tank top and Juliet in a red crop top leaning against this car. First of all, this outfit would hit so hard right now. It would, as my kids would say, that's a fire fit. It slaps, it would slap. The drip slap. is off the drip. It's off the drip, it's a fire fit, it's slapping. It is so slapping, no, it's so true. My daughters would probably wear that exact, I mean, Edie would probably wear that exact outfit now. I think of this movie as a fun fact, as like one of Rodney Dangerfield's last roles. He played Juliette Lewis's father and he's really good, really scary, and it's a really dark role for him. But um, another random sequel, I just need to note for its like moment in history, The Next Karate Kid. Do you know who the next Karate Kid is? Not Mouth Maggio. Um, who was the next? Actually, the Karate Kid number one didn't do anything for me, and Karate Kid number two never even touched my touched my world. Well, then I don't think you saw Karate Kid three because this came after Karate Kid three. This was the next Karate Kid, Hilary Swank as the female Karate Kid. Do you know oh, this, Kate? The, this is the fourth movie of this the series. This is the fourth. This is the fourth, and before Cobra Kai. So we're talking about Kate IP that's still relevant. Karate Kid is still one of like the most popping IPs in current day with Cobra Kai being such a hit. Cobra Kai is absolute genius. That show is that show doesn't miss a beat. And it's they constantly- anything I've ever seen on TV, it's genius. Well, Cobra Kai is smart too because they are constantly paying homage to Mr. Miyagi, Pat Morita, still. And if you want to see him teaching a future two-time Oscar winner, Hillary Swank, you can watch the next Karate Kid. Ralph Macchio is to see by Swank, who replaced the rebellious 17-year-old orphan. <laughs> oh my God. I'm laughing only because her like Oscar narrative is like her and her mom living in their car, you know, like calling their agents from a payphone. Like she had her whole homeless narrative. I think she stole her subtext from her backstory from her karate kid character. From her real life, right. Buzz, the franchise is alive, but not kicking. Oh my God, ouch. <laughs> uh, it made $7 million. <laughs> oh, nothing. But come on, Hilary Swank. Okay, we're in August, we're at the end, but Color of Night, Kate, do you know what this movie is? No, I don't know. <laughs> so I'm giggling. Because this was my test, Kate. Honestly, like this summer movie preview series is gonna be just a tracking of my sexuality throughout the years. I feel bad, but it's like, it was a litmus test. Whereas True Lies, I'm like, okay, I'm fully straight again. Then Color of Night came out. So I just wanna read the preview. 13 year old Brian is reading this preview, okay? Proving that his wife isn't the only one who can bear it all, Bruce Willis faces the cameras nude for the set to be extremely erotic thriller in which he plays a psychiatrist who takes over the therapy group of his murdered partner, Scott Bakula, to try to flush out the killer. One of my patients was killed last night. The more passion they share, the more danger he risks. I'm not who you think I am. Willis, no! Color of Night. 
Just how much steam will rise in the scenes between Willis and co-star Jane March is still to be determined. Control of the final cut has been in dispute, with the Directors Guild of America arbitrating between director Rush and Synergy Productions, which pushed the release from April and could delay it even further, as could Rush's health. The director suffered a heart attack last month. Buzz, the most interesting scenes may end up on the cutting room floor. I'm reading the reviews of this movie right now. Actually, I want to see it. Did you like it? Kate, it is so absurd. Like, there's no way to like it. It is like the most over-the-top like piece of dreck. Now, Kate, at 13 years old, I was not able to get anyone to take me to go see Color of Night. I had heard only about this film, Kate, through this magazine. The full frontal, the erotic thriller, the steamy nature. So I knew this is something I had to watch. When this movie comes out in videos and it shows like with the four steamy minutes not shown in theaters. So I'm like seeing this cover and I'm like, how do I get this movie home? So Kate, I did like, this is one of the scariest things I ever done as a kid. I did a video bait and switch. I got a tape and I swapped tapes out and I swapped yeah. the color of night into another tape and peddled it home, Kate. And I remember this is another situation where I got on my Your bike. Mom must have been racing. This is the summer where, no, racing. I remember I can feel my heart pounding down Manatee Avenue right now. Cortez Avenue. <laughs> Wait, I, I don't know what road I took to get home that day. This is so Florida. Am I right? Cortez and Manatee? It's so, it's so it's Florida. It's so Florida. It's hideous. But Kate, it was the litmus test because I told myself when I got home, I was going to watch this movie. If this VHS in the middle of the night, got me aroused, then I was gay. If not, then I was okay. Like, I was waiting months to test out my sexuality with this film. And, and? let's just say when I got home, <laughs> the results were completely conclusive. There were no grays <laughs> in my anatomy. It was like, ding, 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 ding. I was rewinding, rewinding, rewinding. You see, Kate, they talk about the steamy full frontal. You see, like, the baby tip of Bruce Willis's dick in, like, a baby fleeting moment under or underwater. That's all it took. It was not, I was looking at literally nothing. Could have put a mushroom and thrown it in a bathtub. So this is the summer that like Bruce and the pause button was battling Jamie Lee Curtis and the pole. And like, I was in a tizzy of bisexual fever. I actually can't wait to see this movie. I just gave the Ebert review and I, I'm going to find this movie and watch it because he says it's, it's beyond absurd. It's goofy. <laughs> and I No, that's it. No, goofy. Wait till you see the reveal. Any movie that's reviewed as both erotic and goofy, I'm, I need to see it. But Roger Ebert says, I was frankly stupefied. Yeah. So goofy in its plotting that with just a little more trouble, it could have been a comedy. <laughs> it actually sounds like North. It sounds like North. Anyhow, Maxim Magazine awarded Color of Night for having the best sex scene in history. Rush was proud of the award and has kept it on display in his bathroom. So wow. from a heart attack to an award-winning, iconic film. Close out with this. I skimmed by it so fast and furious. It was covered by my Julia Roberts' uh, I Love Trouble leaflet. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, there were two movies covered. Actually, one is Spanking the Monkey. David O. Russell directed it, and he would go on to do... Um, Three Kings, American Hustle, and Silver Linings Playbook. This is his uh, first movie coming out of Sundance. I knew I was onto something very dirty and powerful, says Russell, of his debut feature about a college kid's affair with his suicidal mother. He switched to the raunchy title, Spanking the Monkey, slang for masturbation, that's in quotes, Entertainment Weekly, because Thanks. I thought Svelter sounded like an Anne Margaret TV movie. College kid's affair with his suicidal mother. It's like, great. Talk Oof. about a, the elevator pitch. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. And finally, Kate, The Mask. Entertainment Weekly says starring Jim Carrey, Richard Jenny, Peter Digert, directed by Chuck Russell. And they talk about this whole film. 
there's not one mention of Cameron Diaz in the whole Entertainment Weekly movie preview. That's amazing. She's, she's, really she was just a model. She didn't have one credit. She This is her first movie. Wow, that's crazy. I had no, I did not know that. The Mask was based on a very obscure comic. Jim Carrey is. That's the guy. Hello. The Mask. Ooh. Somebody stop me! I remember Cameron Diaz walking into the bank dripping wet. This is what stays with me at the beginning, sopping wet. Right. Like, patting herself down when he's working at the bank and he's so flustered. And I remember the dog, when the dog gets the mask and the dog puts the mask on. Do you remember that part? Yep. He has like a little churro. Uh -huh. Oh my God, yeah. Because they did a sequel with Jamie Kennedy. Yeah, they try to really play up the dog because we're missing Jim Carrey. Entertainment Weekly says, combine Ace Ventura's rubber face carry with the awesome computer-generated animation of ILM, which brought you Jurassic Park's dinosaurs. And what do you get? Question mark, an ace in the hole. At least that's what New Line is hoping for with its slapstick comic of a movie, which became one of the summer's hottest prospects when Ace Ventura unexpectedly turned Carrie into a formidable box office draw. In reading about the casting, of course, you know, they were going to like the biggies. They were going to Rick Moranis, Martin Short, Robin Williams. But then they saw a tape of Jim Carrey doing sketch from In Living Color and were so impressed with his contortionist ways. They were like, oh my God, we got to have him. Martin Shore would have also been great in that movie though. Right, totally. You see why they were going for that because they're both, they're such physical performers. Robin Williams, Martin Short, and Jim Carrey are like the most physical performers. It's weird because Jim Carrey, I think it was slightly more menacing than, um, than right. Martin Short. He's got like a darker right. well, underbelly. It, well, that's probably why he got the role next summer in the Batman Forever villain, Jim Carrey. It's funny because I read a story recently how Robin Williams was very jealous of Jim Carrey. Robin Williams was this king of the 90s box office and it was interesting hearing about someone like Robin Williams being intimidated by anyone's comedy, but they said right. as a threat, they said Jim Carrey was a threat. Kate, this, this year, 1994, we cannot make light of this. The spring was Ace Ventura, huge breakout hit, starting an unknown. This summer is The Mask, and this fall is Dumb and Dumber, all in one year, 1994. Oh, wow. So it's- Boom, 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 boom. Boom. And also just the casting, because she really comes up in conversation a lot in these last two episodes. The director, Russell, wanted Anna Nicole Smith as Tina, the female lead, but she had gone to do Naked Gun 33 and a half. A costume director he had worked with had been recommending Cameron Diaz and they got her to audition for the part. The character was additionally written as a good girl who was actually bad, but after Diaz was cast in the part, they rewrote the part to make her generally a good person. Wow, talk about a big break. Cameron Diaz is in my life every day right now. My two-year-old is obsessed with watching the Shrek movies. It's so funny because I just saw her literally yesterday. A clip popped up on my feed like of her and Kelly Clarkson's show. Like Cameron Diaz talks coming out of retirement and she's pitching her like wine in a can. She's at a lifestyle company too. She's like goop light. She's been trying to do her like goop. I've seen her make a cucumber salad. On I know. She's, she's got a lifestyle brand. But anyhow. But her cucumber salad is just cucumber and salt. It's, it's just wild. That's why I love going through the previews. Like in a few years, she's starring in the biggest summer movie something about Mary, but here she's not even mentioned. That is wild. In the Army Now is a Polly Shore film. I just want to note that as this is still the year where Polly Shore was getting a lead summer movie. Shore claims that for this role, he drops much of his Valley Guy shtick. The bandanas, the howls, the stoner lingo. But can a guy best known as a zonked out beach bum called the weasel make the transition from TV clown to a respected actor? Robin no. Williams did it. Tom Hanks did it, and Steve Martin did it. He says, now I'm doing it. You know, buzz. We'll see about that, Polly. <laughs> oh, God, Polly. Uh, R.I.P. Uh, Kate, this I'm dying. Look at this. 
Buried in the Summer Preview. The Pulp Fiction? Yeah. Buried. We're not going to cover it here because it actually winds up covering the fall movie preview of this year. I never saw that movie. I've always been too scared. My son has seen it now and I still right. haven't seen it. I get you because it really was like the tail end Kate of Natural Born Killers of these two really scary kind of like properties. Both you heard about the ultra violent, ultra graphic and kind of taboo. I do want to note my grandma always loved seeing good movies and just go to the theaters. And my grandma was one of the first people to see Pulp Fiction. She knew nothing about it beyond, I heard this is a well-reviewed picture. I heard this is a quality cinema. She was in the front row with her health aid. She took her nurse health aid to see Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and I remember her telling me, oh, oh, oh. she spent the entire movie jumping into her health aid seat, out of her seat. My grandma's not mobile and not a small woman, but was somehow able to levitate into this woman's lap, her health aid. Anyhow, Pulp Fiction, we'll get there. Speaking of the summer of Brendan Fraser, Airheads, Kate, which is a movie about three not-too-smart heavy metal rock and rollers who take a radio station hostage to get their demo tape on the air. It's an absurd dog day afternoon. You broke into the radio station to get your demo played on the air? What are your demands? Number 13, naked pictures of B. Arthur. Excuse me? God help us all! We gotta send one person out. I'll go. One of the hostages, doof. Sorry. Brendan Fraser, Steve Buscemi, Adam Sandler, Airheads. No idea what you're saying right now. We've never made today. Like with YouTube and social media. Like this is a movie about three stoners who just want to get their demo tape on the air. The only way to have people listen to something is to hold a radio station hostage. All they need today is literally just the, like an Instagram stream or Spotify account. <laughs> no, exactly. That, that, that's why this, I was going to make the same point that this movie is a, a special relic because the setup wouldn't exist right. today. There's no, right. there's nothing comparable. It's legendary for the two stars build underneath Brendan Fraser, starring Brendan Fraser, Steve Buscemi, Adam Sandler. Buzz, yeah. Sandler gets most of the laughs. Sandler would become like king of summer movies. This is him as just uh, original supporting role. And Steve Buscemi, and they would have a long story history of working together of these sick parts in, you know, Billy Madison. They should they should create a vehicle for Brendan Fraser and bring him back Big into Daddy. the Big Daddy. Yes, oh my God, bring Brendan Fraser back into the Adam Sandler universe. They should. Kate, and I feel like thank Adam you, they Sandler owe him has, that. I feel like Adam Sandler has the heart and the imagination to make it happen. Also in August, there's always this last corner where they put like the et cetera movies. Camp Nowhere. Did we talk about this last time, Camp Nowhere? I think we did. Also buried in here, I love this. Two really um, big filmmakers who'd have like a major impact on the independent scene on different ends of the spectrum have movies coming out in August. Ang Lee, Wedding Banquet director Ang Lee offers Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, a comedy about a father in Taiwan coping with his modern daughters. It's one of Ang Lee's classic um, early films. And then Clerks, winner of the Filmmaker's Trophy at Sundance, Clerks follows two employees through their days at a New York convenience store. Clerks also didn't come out till fall, so we'll save that for the fall movie preview. Well, Kate, we did it. Now I wanna go through our game here is the island game, Kate. So we're taking five movies to our island, okay? Now just to recap, so I told you that Speed and True Lies are like iconic inspirations for me, they're coming with. You mentioned Lion King you're bringing. So we'll make that our top three, Speed, True Lies, and Lion King. And I really think that is a great embodiment of the summer there. So now, Kate, we each get a grab bag pick. We each can bring one other movie to the island. It's funny, Kate, this is the summer where the highs are highs and lows are lows. There's a lot, not a lot of good movies this summer. Lows are so low. Angels in the Outfield, it could happen mm -hmm. to you. I would say Forrest Gump, but only because I have to say- If like, you have to rewatch a movie. Super rewatchable. It's super rewatchable, and these other movies don't, just wouldn't have the same entertainment value. I think my wild card has to be The Client. You were in your- Oh no, I lied. Era. No, I'm kicking oh. it out. 
Because we already, I'm considering the island. We need to be clear of what's at the island. I'm rescinding the client because we already have the firm. So if I need a, if I need a legal Same thriller, movie. I have, I don't Same need to check movie. both out of our library. But what I don't have is an erotic thriller. So I'm putting Color of Night in the yeah, island. I because I really can't if I have to live on the island, you I, need that okay, mushroom, we can't procreate. We can't procreate together there. I'm going to need some male entertainment to get me through uh, my okay. stay. Well, it's little shiitake mushroom is going to have to do the oh, job. And actually, let's end on that. Let's actually end toasting Bruce Willis because, you know, he's had, he just retired from acting this year. He's suffering, honestly, Oof. from, my Instagram lit up. I follow, I feel like, do I follow like all of his children's Instagram? Because on one day, they all shared this really sad post about his mental decline. No, I felt the same decline. way. I'm following all of his ex-wives and all of his daughters. All the women and, in his life came together that day. Right, six women aligned on one Instagram post. And I don't know. There's not more of a declaration of love exactly. than six women rallying for one Instagram post. I always, I always think like Bruce Willis must legitimately be a nice person because he must be the man he pretends to be because every woman in his life, ex-wives, girlfriends, daughters, daughters, they all like him. I know, like, right? It, that's a that's a hard crowd to please. It's it's unfair. He won the worst actor of the year award. They said for a combination of <laughs> of North and 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 Color of Night. So it's a rough year for Bruce. So I'm happy to actually give him another award. He not only won the Razzie, he's in the Desert Island of While he You're Streaming. Desert Island. I love true. it. You're absolutely the only person taking that movie to a desert island. Kate, I love you for bearing with me on this journey. Can you believe it's been a like, pleasure. when I scheduled your time with this, we're like, let's do an hour. I'm like, Kate, we're going to need a minimum of two hours. Correction, we needed two hours to do the first half. And we needed two hours to do the second half. We've talked for four hours, Kate. I actually feel like I might be on a desert island. I'm so hungry. I had to pee so bad. I'm, I'm, on, a, I'm on a desert island. I was going to say, like, I'm having so much fun. I want to keep going. Like, I, like, do you want to keep going through the rest of the issue right now? What else is in there? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That was a joke. Oh, uh, that is a joke. Although I do want to actually just note what was the top of the box office when this issue came out. Just for context, The Crow, When a Man Loves a Woman, Crooklyn with Honors, Four Weddings and a Funeral, Three Ninjas Kickback, No Escape, Clean Slate, Bad Girls, and Schindler's List in its 22nd week after its Christmas release. It is still in the top 10 this summer. Wild. Wild. Well, Kate, I have so much love for you, my love North you. my North Star. I can't believe, Kate, I'm going to see you in London. We're going on the Harry Potter studio tour this summer. Yeah, I, I really can't wait. Do you know what we're doing the rest of the summer, Because which is our trend? Watching horrible lowbrow Melissa McCarthy movies together. Every time with Kate and her kids, we're going to be watching the worst. Like, the trash. The trash, trash. Is, a.k.a. a movie her director husband. And please, Melissa McCarthy, divorce your husband for the sake of divorce your cinematic him. career. Divorce him. For the sake of your career. Okay, okay love you. Love you. Welcome back to the podcast by popular demand. Heard the response from fans overwhelmingly asking for Big P's top five. And I want to go through, Daddy, your top five movies of 1994. Now, for me, this is when, like, I got the Speed poster, and that became an obsession for me getting these movie posters. Do you remember this? Yes, uh, River Runs Through It, Speed, True Lies, and your huge crush, of course, on on uh, Sandra Bullock. There we go. Well, do you want me to go to some usual movies that left the, an indulgible uh, memory for me? Well, it's Pat. I love it. <laughs> the laugh. I still uh, use that one to this day. It was awful, <laughs> but yet it was it was quite funny. I remember she like oh she like bangs her crotch and she's like oh my nuts and then she's like hoo hoo and she puts out a bag of like walnuts just my snack. <laughs> Oh, Pat. 
Is that a banana in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> no, it's a banana. <laughs> it was such a horrible movie that I actually left it at a vacation home. Nobody took it. I don't know if they tossed it. It was just, it was one of the worst movies ever made, but I enjoyed it. So you intentionally left it behind at the summer home just to torture the next family that occupied the space? Exactly. <laughs> I do remember this. Now, it's Pat, what do you think, though, now in the year 2022, like with everyone being so focused on gender identity and gender politics, like how do you think the world would identify with a character like Pat today? Well, it would be a much longer movie because, like, it would have to say it, she, he, they. Would, it would there'd be so many, like... Uh... More think, wording on the movie. I think Pat. I think it would be shorter. I think Pat would simply be them. We'd, there'd be no question. Like now, there wouldn't be the question. There was no language to discuss it. In all seriousness, that was the joke back then. There was no language to discuss it. The movie actually, I think, is going to be even shorter. There's no question. Pat's a they them. The end. It's a short film, really. Yeah, I have a point there. If you take out the question of what her gender is, there is no movie. Are you a brother or a sister? Well, I'm an only child. <laughs> this summer, if you think it's a man. Pat, I'm in a towel. Should I be embarrassed? Ouch. If you're positive it's a woman. Oh, this is something, something we'll, we'll both enjoy. enjoy. Then there's one thing for sure. It's Pat. The movie. Even Pat herself, the creator of that movie, Julia Sweeney, she did not want to make the movie because they had all the success with Wayne's World. They came to SNL and they were trying to make anything into a movie. So they had these movies coming out soon, like Stuart Smalley Saves the World and Night at the Roxbury and Night Ladies Man. They have some really bad uh, movies, starting with last year's Coneheads that came out. Some really bad SNL films. But in that summer specifically of 1994, Quentin Tarantino was like the man. It was the year of Pulp Fiction, and it was the year of Natural Born Killers. But what you may not have known is he worked on a third movie that was released in 1994. It's Pat. Quentin Tarantino was friends with Julia Sweeney from the Los Angeles comedy scene, the comedian who stars as Pat. So Quentin Tarantino took a stab at some rewrites of the script, did some punch-ups. So behind the scenes, the mind who brought you Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood actually helped craft It's Pat come to life. It's Pat also starred a small part from Kathy Griffin, you know, who's a comedian I was obsessed with. And it's so random. She also makes a cameo in Pulp Fiction. The scene with the gimp with Ving Rhames on the street. Julia Sweeney, Pat herself, has a cameo in Pulp Fiction. So it's just so funny. He worked in her movie, and she makes an appearance in his seminal film. You know the box office for It's Pat? Um, I don't know. Did it last like a week, three days, a couple of thousand? Stop. Why'd you say three days? Nah, I was just, uh, just a wild guess. The film opened in only three cities. Its total gross was $60,000. The film was pulled from theaters after its opening weekend. Its opening weekend is three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So you really actually were right. It made a total gross of $60,000. Variety magazine called it shockingly unfunny. <laughs> it was nominated for Worst Picture that year, but it lost to Showgirls. However, Julia Sweeney did win Worst Actress for the film. Damn. And Dad, you know, it's so weird. So this show, Work in Progress in Showtime, um, last season, in 2021, Julia Sweeney came on as her character and addressing the problematic politics of the time. But it still lives in its time and place as its own beautiful, sick, warp little gem. <laughs> okay, I want to start in the bottom of the barrel. Well, let's climb up from there. The movie Milk Money, that's like another movie that really got 
horrible reviews and left no legacy. No one knows the movie Milk Money, but I know my dad knows Milk Money. So what's your reminiscence of this one? Uh, Melanie Griffith walking in town uh, with the boys who actually uh, chipped in all their change to hire her as a prostitute. But then she thought she would be perfect for her dad. Ed Harris, another fine actor who I don't want to say was stuck in this role, but somehow, in spite of the, the film, he managed to uh, to do a believable you know job in it. It's a wild concept. 12-year-old boys going to town to give their milk money to a hooker to show their boobs. Pretty much. Did you take your clothes off for $103.62? I remember Melanie Griffin staying in the treehouse and the young son like bringing her like food and Ed Harris has lost his wife. So he brought her like, you know, dresses until like they found out that she was, you know, previously uh, a hooker. No smoking, no swearing, and don't take your clothes off for money. People like your dad don't marry women like me. I told him what you did and he didn't mind. He's Brad's new math tutor. I bet you're really good at it. Well, there's only one way to find out. It ended up being kind of a, an unusual love story. Co-starring Malcolm McDowell as the bad guy. <laughs> and Anne Hayes, she is a small part as like another, uh, I think, hooker in the movie. I remember one line from the movie. You remember there's a scene with the flashlight. They're pointing it up at the ceiling, I think, of the roof. They're in the, the treehouse. Tree and he pushes the flashlight to the ceiling and he looks up and he goes, looks like a boob. Guess I must have pushed that out of my memory. There was, there was, there was some bad lines in the movie, but overall, for whatever warp reason, I liked it. Yeah, what about the movie Corinna Corinna? Do you remember that one at all? Corinna Corinna. Yeah, with Whoopi Goldberg and I think Ray Liotta. Right. It wasn't a. It was a. It was a drama, uh, where I think she was a maid and um, they kind of fell in love, but it was taboo. It was an okay. It was an okay film. It could happen to you with Nick Cage and Bridget Fonda and Rosie Perez. And well, there you go. And that's exactly why you remember the movie. So what's her line? Her line was when they were in court. And he went to like say hey and point something out, and he barely touched his shoulder. She's like, "Oh, would you look at this abuse? Look at this you abuse!" Know? I know. <laughs> a lot of wives would not be so happy with their husbands splitting their million dollars with a, a stranger. I'm the blonde, pretty, personable stranger at that. This is also one of the classic, like, key examples of someone from the 90s before he became a star who's in every movie. Last year, he was in Pelican Brief. In this movie, he has a small part as Bridget Fonda's deadbeat ex-boyfriend, Stanley Tucci. A great character actor to this day. Right. I mean, he could play, you know, the gay assistant in Devil Wears Prada. And here he's just this like hyper torturous macho jerk. And to this day, every time in a grocery store, I see a certain food item. What do I think of from this movie? Uh, oh, my God. The macadamia nuts that 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 she clutched so close to her chest, not wanting to give up the macadamia nuts. All she aspires to is to be able to afford macadamia nuts because that's like a huge luxury for a waitress. And then doesn't he take the macadamia nut from her? And she's like, she's like pissed because he snatches it from her. Yes. And to this day, every time in the store I see the macadamia nuts, I'm like, ooh, that's like still a luxury. Like until I win the lottery, I can't be that big baller. The buzz in this movie, Cage scored in Guarding Tess as another henpecked lawman. And with few summer romantic comedies around, this could be summer's date movie by default. And actually, I think it only had like a $20 million budget and it made about $50 million. So for a small movie back in the day, $50 million for this, they did pretty well. But I honestly wish they kept the original title, Cop Gives Waitress $2 million Tip. It could happen to you. What? That's like the most banal, basic, that's, you know, nothing of the title. 
But still, the movie's cute, is worth a watch. Directed by Andrew Bergman, who did Honeymoon in Vegas the previous year with Nick Cage. This all leads up to a movie I really do remember you taking us to go see was Forrest Gump. Yeah, that we saw with Uncle Matt. Got to throw some props to him. And it was it was uh, a great movie that holds up well to, you know, to this day. Now looking back, they say that was one of the big Academy Award misses was not giving it to Pulp Fiction over Forrest Gump. But, you know, Roger Ebert, he gave Forrest Gump, you know, this glowing review saying the movie is magic. Like everyone was wrapped up in that magic at the time. I, we went so many times. We watched it on video so many times. Enjoyable to this day. You hit the nail on the head as far as it being like this kind of like fairy tale magical story, so to speak. This is Tom Hanks' second back-to-back -back Oscar win. Just rewatched his speech from Philadelphia and like you cannot help, well, I cannot help, cry during the speech. It is so sweet. So I can definitely see why the Academy was desperate to give him another one for Forrest Gump because he just made such a good winner. And Dad, this is so funny because his speech winning his Oscar for Philadelphia is what inspired the movie In and Out, which is I know is another one of your secret favorite movies that we just we watched. Just watched. Mr. Brackett. In, in Philadelphia, he thanks these brave gay teachers that raised him in his school. And meanwhile, he the teacher wasn't out in his community. So Tom Hanks, you know, outed the teacher uh, inadvertently, you know, as the urban legend goes. But what's your thought in terms of looking back? Like, did he deserve to win Best Actor second year in a row? I'd have to think back who else was up for the... Uh... Uh, could it have been Morgan Freeman? Right, you're, you're on the path. So the nominees were Travolta was Pulp Fiction, Paul Newman's Nobody's Fool, Nigel Hawthorne, Madness of King George, Morgan Freeman's Shawshank Redemption. I'll say it, but Paul Newman had already won the best actor, So, but so did Tom Hanks. Oh boy, if I had to give it to somebody, I'd probably still give it to Tom Hanks. He was so really? likable in that character in that movie. Someone who's never won is Samuel L. Jackson. He's never won an Oscar. He's the one who actually admits he should have won. He was robbed. That same year, 1994, the winner was Martin Landau for Ed Wood. Samuel Jackson was nominated for Pulp Fiction. Charles Palminteri was nominated for Bullets Over Broadway. Paul Schofield nominated for Quiz Show. And Gary Sinise nominated for Forrest Gump. Well, I think it's uh, unfortunate. Samuel Jackson is, is has done some bad movies, but he's, a, he's an excellent actor in his own right. And... Uh, it's a shame he hasn't won an award. Of course, one of my favorites, oh gosh, with uh, I think Gina Davis. Came out in 1996, Long Kiss Goodnight. It's directed by Rennie Harlan. It's so good, right? It's like so random. Well, it gets extra uh, points from our family. It was over the top, but there was also some great lines in it. The chemistry between Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson was, uh, was good. And of course, Brian Cox, you gotta love him. Oh my God. And can dad, please just, can we end our conversation along Kiss Goodnight? Can you just quote like Brian Cox's like classic line from the movie? Just to set the stage, Brian Cox has just won the Emmy for best actor for Succession. He's the most like esteemed legendary British actor, but before Succession, he had a small part. Right, and the thing is, he is like this semi-retired, very important CIA guy. And his, his, <laughs> his wife is this, older probably like a little dementia and she's there with her dog and he's trying to concentrate so he says to her like alice please your dog and in her crotch not crotchety but in this old voice she said what's wrong with the dog and his his line was it and my appetite are mutually exclusive it's been licking its asshole for three consecutive hours and i submit to you 
There's nothing there worth more than his hour's attention. At this point, whatever it's attempting to dislodge is gone for good or there to stay. <laughs> Alice, please. Your dog, Alice. It and my appetite are mutually exclusive. Well, what's wrong with the dog? It's simple. He's been licking his asshole for the last three straight hours. I submit to you that there is nothing there worth more than an hour's attention. And I should think that whatever he is attempting to dislodge is either gone for good or there to stay. Oh, classic my God. Line. Classic line. That is hysterical, Dad. I am so dying over that. And we've used that line ourselves with our own dogs over the years. So there you have it. Oh my God! Well, Dad, what a way to close it out. Have great a- memories, great times, and on that note, I'm out. Bye, Dad. Love you. Bye. Well, there you go, my faithful Wallyover streamers. You made it to the end of a very action-packed episode. Join us next week for another doubleheader. Yes, we've got some hot and heavy cover girls here. We've got Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep covering the 95 preview for The Bridges of Madison County. Tom Hanks, Apollo 13, Jim Carrey, Batman Forever, Michelle Pfeiffer, Dangerous Minds, Keanu for Johnny Mnemonic, Pocahontas, and there's Mel Braveheart. All right, see y'all next time, covering all the movies you should be watching while you were streaming. That's all I have to say about that.